This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strimple. Many hundreds of films have been shot on location in the American West. The rugged, inhospitable landscapes are an integral part of what gives so many American Westerns their distinctive character. Although the region is vast, stretching from the Rockies in Wyoming and Colorado to Utah, New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona and California, a few locations have captured the lion's share of the film industry's attention. What is it about these landscapes that makes them so photogenic? And how do they get that way? In this episode, Craig Jones casts light on the answers to these questions. He is a professor in the Department of Geological Sciences at Colorado University at Boulder. His research aims to uncover the origin of mountains and elevated topography in continents, primarily in the western United States. His main tool for doing this is seismology, but he also incorporates observations from other disciplines, such as gravity measurements, paleoaltimetry, and petrology. He's written a book on the Sierra Nevada and leads field trips to the rugged terrains we're discussing here. Craig Jones, welcome to Geology Bites. Thank you very much for having me. Before we start talking about the specific locations that became Hollywood favorites, how should we approach the question of understanding how the salient features of today's landscape came to be? The simplest way to think of it is in three parts. One is basically the intrinsic characteristics of the rocks themselves, so how they're actually constructed, what materials are used. Then the physical and chemical processes that then affect the rocks after they're created. Typically, we're talking about erosional characteristics. And then to view these kind of landscapes, the present-day climate is an important component to be able to understand why we get these kind of landscapes. Okay, we're going to focus on just two very distinct areas in the American West that have been the favorite of film directors. The Colorado Plateau, which covers parts of Colorado, Utah, New Mexico and Arizona, and the Alabama Hills, which lie 50 kilometers west of Death Valley in the Sierra Nevada. Let's start with the Colorado Plateau, concentrating on Monument Valley, where over 60 major films were shot, starting with Stagecoach in 1939 and including the classic John Ford movies with John Wayne. We'll also touch on a few other locations in the Colorado Plateau, such as the Grand Canyon, Zion, and Bryce Canyon. What is the origin of the rocks in the Colorado Plateau? The rocks that are present in all of these places are sedimentary rocks, rocks that are made up of what was originally mud and sand or little limey creatures. It's varied a little bit over the history of the Colorado Plateau. Most of these deposits have been made within about the last 500 million years. One of the important characteristics of these sedimentary rocks is the variation of them over time. And it's that combination of the variation of seas rising and falling and mountains rising and falling that gives you the opportunity to have this diverse arrangement of sedimentary rock, which is what leads to these dramatic landscapes. So you mentioned shorelines. So do we know what the depositional context was for the materials that make up these rocks? Yes, it's varied quite a bit. So, for instance, if you're at the Grand Canyon and you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, you're standing on the Kaibab limestone, which is 
a marine deposit, but you go to Monument Valley and you look at uh, wonderful spires that are there and you're looking at the Deche sandstone, which is sand dunes, kind of like what you would have now in the Sahara. And then there are fluvial deposits, river deposits, that are, for instance, sitting in the Oregon Rock Formation, sitting at the base of those spires in Monument Valley. So we've had quite a variation, and it really is the fact that it's come and gone with these different environments that allows for all this diversity. Hmm, interesting. So we have both marine, fluvial, and aeolian deposition in different places. What sort of time scale are we talking about when this deposition got going, and how long did it last? Well, of course, it varies from place to place. For instance, at the Grand Canyon... Most of what you're looking at, the bottom is the Tapit sandstone, which is a little over 500 million years old. And at the top, that Kaibab limestone is a little over 300 million years old. So there you're talking about 200 million years of time. Of course, a significant amount of that time, no rocks were deposited at all. You move over to Monument Valley and you're looking at somewhat younger rocks, which overlap in part with the Kaibab limestone, but they were closer to an ancestral Rocky Mountain range that existed here in Colorado, Monument Valleys to the west in Utah and Arizona. So that time period was actually so much shorter for everything you see in Monument Valley, probably maybe 50 million years. And then if you went to something much younger, you talk, say, about Bryce Canyon National Park. The rocks there are pretty much deposited within about 10 million years. So different places are sampling different parts of the geologic history of the Colorado Plateau and are representing different durations of time. What was the larger tectonic context at the time? Was this before or after the creation of Pangaea? And did North America already exist as an intact piece of continent at that time? Well, North America was definitely... At that point, before Pangaea assembled, we call it Laurentia because parts of what are today North America were at the time on other continents. But this area in the southwestern part of the United States was definitely part of Laurentia and part of North America. Parts of that geology predate Pangaea. So, for instance, the section you see in the Grand Canyon, for the most part, is older. The stuff you see in Monument Valley was accumulating pretty much at the time that Pangaea was finally being assembled. And so those ancestral Rocky Mountains were a product and part of the final closure of an ocean between South America and North America. And then a number of the rocks that are present are younger and actually date to when North America had separated once again from pieces of Pangaea. So Zion National Park, the big sandstone cliffs there, Bryce Canyon National Park, both of those post-date Pangaea. So as you mentioned earlier, the depositional environments are very different from place to place. Some of them were fluvial, some marine, some aeolian. But even in a given spot, you can see from the way the formations change as you go up and down across an exposure, for example, there is a huge variation. What accounts for that in a given place? And how does that wind up affecting the rocks and how they appear and how strong they are? One of the big factors in the Colorado Plateau, again, is the ancestral Rockies. So prior to that time period, things were relatively quiet and the plateau was fairly close to sea level. 
So further west you went, you were a little bit deeper water, and so you have things like the Moave limestone, which is a prominent cliff former in the Grand Canyon. And you go a little further east, and you find some fairly thin shoreline deposits and some coastal deposits. As global sea level changes, of course, you can get these little variations. But then you throw in something like the ancestral Rockies, and they start to erode. That material has to go somewhere. And one of the places it went was the Colorado Plateau. And so the vast pile of red rock that you find in Monument Valley, that you also find in the Grand Canyon, the Supai Group, those sedimentary rocks are basically because you now had this big source of sand and gravel and mud that was flooding across the landscape. Uh, as those mountains finally were worn down roughly 250 million years ago, then you started to see the return of the oceans coming back into parts of the plateau. Similarly, much later on, the modern Rocky Mountains were created starting roughly 75 million years ago. And as part of that, the river systems were disrupted, and we ended up with some very large lakes. One of those large lakes is actually the source of the sedimentary rock that we have in Bryce Canyon. So it's been a mix of broad-scale global changes, some local changes because of tectonic activity. Okay, so let's talk about the second phase then, about what's happened since these sediments were originally laid down. In order to get erosion, the very first thing you need is elevation. If the rock is sitting down near or below sea level, not much is going to happen. Once you've managed to raise the rock on up, then erosion is going to be able to act on it. There's two different aspects of that. The main one really for our purposes is physical erosion. So it's basically the weathering, breaking down the rock, and then transporting it away as erosion. And different kinds of rock will behave differently. So the fluvial sandstones and mudstones, typically they're very thin bedded. Uh, when you look at them, it kind of will look like rubbly slopes. Then these sand seas, those sandstones tend to be quite massive. Uh, you see what's called cross bedding in it, which comes from actually frozen sand dunes, basically, that have been preserved. And that material tends to form large cliffs. The limestones and some other things like conglomerates, which are much coarser than the sandstones, those tend to be far more resistant. They'll be ledge formers, but they're typically not very thick. So erosion, the physical erosion of this material results in different looking things. The other thing that's important, I think, for a lot of people is really the diversity of color. So for instance, we have what's called the painted desert which is just to the east of the Grand Canyon. This is actually the Chin Li Formation, and it's largely so colorful in the case of the Chin Li is because of volcanic ash deposits, which have lent uh, colors from not only from iron, which is the most common rock coloring agent, but from manganese and copper and occasionally some other metals, which will give you the pinks and maroons and some greens and even some bluish-looking rock most of the red rock, though, that you see, it's iron, and that iron has been oxidized. It's been rusted. Uh, the iron might have originally been in the rock as little grains of magnetite. It could have been deposited as hematite. There are some other mineral grains that are iron-rich. The key thing, though, is that you need these deposits to have been made in an environment where you have oxidation, which is typically going to be at or above sea level. So in particular, 
the really red rocks, say at the base of the pinnacles in Monument Valley, those tend to be fluvial sediments. Uh, They were deposited by rivers, so the rock was basically being exposed. The muds, before it became rock, was being exposed to the atmosphere. These things weathered into these very, very red colors, which are now exposed. And so most of the red rock that we have in the Colorado Plateau has been produced in that manner. But there are places where the rock is kind of whitish. Is that a different environment? Yeah. In particular, the case of the Navajo is is kind of interesting. So again, the Navajo is what forms the tremendous cliffs in uh, Zion National Park. And you'll see both red and white colors in the Navajo, pretty much with the white above the red. And for a long time, geologists argued about just exactly whether the Navajo started white and was stained red, whether it started red and was bleached white. I think starting red and bleached white has got the best support. And the interesting thing is that what would do this is if you had a reducing environment, one which is the opposite of oxidizing. And it turns out that if you have petrochemicals, petroleum and gas and other sort of organic solvents, that move up in the rock. The Navajo sandstone is actually a very porous sandstone. It's what we would consider an aquifer. So as petroleum is released from some underlying, say, limestones, it rises up and it maybe gets trapped in the Navajo sandstone. Above it is something called the temple cap limestone, which then prevents any further upward motion of these fluids. The fluids being reducing change the color of the rock from red to white. So it's been suggested, I think with good evidence, that a lot of the white Navajo sandstone that we find in the southwestern U.S. used to be a big oil reserve that subsequently was breached by erosion. All the oil and gas went to the atmosphere, went into the surface waters, and we've now been left with these different colors. Was there any particular confluence of circumstances that led to the formation of the incredibly dramatic rock towers in Monument Valley? The big thing that is true in Monument Valley is first you have at the bottom, at the very bottom, you have a fairly resistant rock unit that provides a base. And sitting on top of that are some fluvial deposits, which is basically the organ rock formation. And then you have the sand sea, the Deshaies sandstone. And the trick, of course, with this sort of cliff former is that the way I sometimes think about it is If you went to the beach and you had sand and you had for some reason a pile of dominoes and you set them up on end, kind of like if you're trying to knock over a whole series of dominoes, but you actually bring them close together so that they're actually right up against one another, they'll sit there just fine so long as the sand is sitting underneath it. But if you start digging away at the sand at the edges, dominoes basically start to fall in as the base that they sit on basically starts to become unstable. And that's kind of what happens with these big cliff formers is that as long as you have something firm underneath, they'll support these tremendous cliffs. But the moment you start to eat away at that material underneath, then they fail, uh, sometimes quite dramatically, and still preserve a cliff. So as the cliff retreats, it stays this big vertical cliff. And that variation in the style of the rock that was deposited going from the much more muddy fluvial rocks of the Oregon rock that sits below the Deshaies sandstone, transitioning to the big, thick, uh, just pure sand, aeolian sandstones of the Deshaies, gives you that wonderful contrast that gives you this incredibly dramatic and iconic topography. 
and that sticks out because all around it the sandy base became unstable and the rocks just fell away and have been washed away by rivers is that right yes that would be accurate and what about the massive cliffs in zion or the pinnacles in bryce so zion's very much the same as monument valley it's younger again in terms of the navajo sandstone is younger than the stuff in monument valley in fact, it was probably one of the largest sand seas on Earth. Zion is about the thickest of the Navajo sandstone. The case there is that you have the Kayenta formation underneath, which is almost exactly like the Oregon rock in terms of it being a fluvial deposit that can be eroded away. The neat thing in Zion is that as you walk upstream, if you go upstream in the main canyon, Eventually, the walls come together and you can walk up the narrows of the Virgin River. The Virgin River is the river draining Zion. And you can reach places where you can reach across and you could touch both sides of the canyon from one spot. And when you're doing that, you're now standing on the Navajo sandstone. You're no longer standing on any of the underlying sedimentary rocks. And so that's a place where the strength of these sandstones to you know, resistance basically to collapsing uh, really stands out you know there are places in the narrows you look up and you cannot see the sky uh, because it's basically this slot and these kind of slot canyons are relatively common in the colorado plateau bryce is a much younger story and it's different because in bryce you have what are called hoodoos so the thing that stands out about bryce aside from the colors which are these bright oranges are these pinnacles. And in this case, you're dealing with a differential resistance to weathering that's present in some of the layers. So some of the layers are lake deposits. They're really, to a geologist, they're sort of ugly. They're actually kind of hard to interpret because they were altered a fair bit after they were deposited. But part of that was that some areas are cemented and some areas aren't. And there's a bunch of cracks, we call them joints, to indicate there's no real motion across them. And these cracks act as places where weathering proceeds very rapidly. And then in between the cracks, weathering is much slower. And as a result, if you have cross-cutting sets of these joints, you end up then with isolated pinnacles. And depending on how efficacious the erosion is, in the case for Bryce, it's basically a steep-sided amphitheater where erosion works very, very well. You flush away all the material that's between these pinnacles and you're left then with these dramatic hoodoos. Okay, so turning now to the third and final phase that you mentioned, the reason the rocks are in plain sight from horizon to horizon is because this area is so extremely arid and nothing can grow. Why is it so dry? There's two pieces to that. One is that we're kind of on the edge of the global desert belt that you find near the Tropic of Cancer. So you're not quite up into the big wet part of the higher latitudes, but a huge part of it is that the Colorado Plateau is surrounded by mountains that are significantly higher than it. So storms at this latitude tend to come from west to east through the winter. And what those storms encounter to the west is the Sierra Nevada, and the Sierra Nevada does a perfectly fine job of earning its name by scraping off a lot of the moisture. So very little is actually left, and even what little is left then encounters what are called the high plateaus at the very west side of the Colorado Plateau. And the high plateaus scrape off a little bit more, so when you get in the interior of the plateau, 
there's very little moisture uh, making its way there. Now, there are times of the year where you do get storms moving from east to west. Those of us who live here uh, on the east side of the Rockies actually see this typically in early spring, where moisture coming maybe from the Gulf of Mexico is trying to work its way west. And again, it encounters mountains. It encounters the Rocky Mountains. Rocky Mountains, again, scrape off all the moisture. As the air falls down the other side, it dries out. And again, the Colorado Plateau kind of gets skunked out of any significant moisture. The last direction where you might get moisture is from the south during the summer monsoon season. There you run into what's called the Mogollon Rim, which is not as high as the Sierra Nevada or the Rocky Mountains, but it's still higher than the bulk of the Colorado Plateau. And so once again, you tend to scrape off the moisture that might be coming in from the summer monsoon. So a little bit is the global environment that the Colorado Plateau finds itself in, but an awful lot of it is that despite the fact that it's well over a mile in elevation in, in large parts of the plateau, it's surrounded by higher rock, higher mountains that basically prevent any of that moisture from sneaking in. Okay, let's turn to our second area of movie-making fame, the misleadingly named Alabama Hills in the Southern California Sierra Nevada Mountains. Its proximity to Hollywood made it extremely popular with film directors, and over 300 films were shot there, such as High Sierra with Humphrey Bogart, Django Unchained, and many episodes of the Lone Ranger series, not to mention tons of truck and SUV ads that were shown on U.S. television. This must be a completely different geological story. Yeah, and indeed it is. Almost all the rocks that you find in the Alabama hills and the Sierra Nevada that sits behind it are granites or granitoids. Where do these granites come from? Typically what you're looking at is subduction of an oceanic plate underneath the edge of the continent. Um, as that water-saturated oceanic plate, the water is bound in minerals. They become unbound as you get to certain pressures and temperatures. That water that then rises off the subducting slab interacts with the overriding mantle, melts the mantle much as throwing salt onto ice will cause the ice to melt. Throwing water into the mantle causes the mantle to melt. Yielding magmas that rise up into the crust, and you end up creating volcanoes, such as Mount St. Helens, Mount Rainier in the Pacific Northwest today, and underneath them you produce these granites. So we're basically looking at one of the longest-lived volcanic arcs in the world, at least over the past 500 million years, is the volcanic arc that's existed in the Sierra Nevada from something like 320 million years ago to about 80 million years ago. Okay, so... What's happened to this granite since it was emplaced? So these granites crystallize at depth. The way that you get the nice big crystals that you can see in a granite is by having a lot of time for the minerals to get organized. And so you need to be at some significant depth. Some of the shallowest of the granites may have been just five kilometers below the surface. Somewhere as deep as almost 30 kilometers below the surface. Well, they're not at great depth anymore, so you had to actually remove a lot of the material on top. For the most part, that was done by erosion. What was on top were the volcanoes, so the lavas and tephras and other volcanic materials. Those were far more easily eroded, and most of that material was removed by about 
60, 65 million years ago. Subsequent to that, you start seeing in the sedimentary rocks the transition from the volcanic materials being eroded to the granites being eroded off. Again, in order to have erosion, you have to have elevation. Certainly in the late Cretaceous, say 70, 75 million years ago, the Sierra Nevada had to be high. The big question has been since then exactly what's happened. This actually leads us into a little bit of controversy. There's two camps, basically. One that thinks the Sierra Nevada has stayed high, much like it is today, pretty much since 70 million years ago. And the other camp feels that the range was lower. Uh, It eroded down and eroded down and ended up to be significantly lower than it is today and has subsequently risen up in about the last 10 million years. If the evidence can be interpreted to mean there was a fairly sudden uplift over a certain period of time, this reminds me a little bit of what Peter Molnar was talking about in his podcast to explain the rapid uplift of Tibet. And I'm wondering if the seismic imaging under the Sierras is good enough to see if there's a piece of mantle that might have dropped off that could be implicated here. Yes, I mean, those of us who are inclined to think that the range is young point to an anomaly that long ago I called it the Isabella anomaly, and that name is stuck. So this is a high velocity, high velocity in the sense of the speed of seismic waves through the material, body that sits in the upper mantle, going down to depths of around 300 kilometers underneath uh, the southeastern Great Valley, the southwestern Sierra Nevada. And it turns out volumetrically that this looks very much like the material that would have sat underneath the high part of the Sierra Nevada 10 million years ago. And unlike uh, the situation in Tibet, our ability to image this is much better in the case of California, in part because it's a smaller area. Logistically, it's much easier to access. Um, And actually, the geometry of earthquake sources for being able to do tomography is very good in California. So we have this really excellent image of this body. We also have evidence from volcanic pipes that came up between 8 and 12 million years ago in the Sierra Nevada that actually brought up pieces of the uppermost mantle and the lowest crust that used to be present in the Sierra Nevada. And that material... Some of it is basically just garnet and pyroxene, so it's a garnet peroxinite. This material is very, very dense. It's denser than the mantle underneath it. It's gone today when we do imaging under the high part of the range. There is none of this material present under the range today, but the material in the Isabella anomaly, the characteristics of it, are perfectly compatible with that Isabella anomaly containing a lot of this garnet peroxinite. So... It does seem like a way in order to get the mountain range to rise up is that you have removed this very dense material that sat at the bottom of the crust, uh, and now you've just kind of poured it down this hole uh, so it's on its way down into the mantle. Let's talk a bit about the shapes of the landscape. In contrast to Monument Valley and the Colorado Plateau, we don't see tabletop mountains, stepped cliffs, and the towers that we see there, it looks really different. The first thing is, of course, the granite is far more uniform in its behavior. You're not going to have a rubbly slope and then a big cliff and some capping thing that uh, is more resistant. It's all granite. 
But what really affects the way the granite erodes is a lot to do with the climate. So if we go back to the Alabama hills, when you look at the Alabama hills, it's these rounded knobs. Uh, Chamber of Commerce in Lone Pine likes to tout them as the oldest hills in the world, which is ridiculous. They're not particularly old. But they give you that kind of sense that they've been there forever and they've been sort of rounded and ground down. Whereas the exact same rock um, that sits up on the crest of the Sierra Nevada that's in the background of those movies, it's forming these tremendous spires and arets, horns, uh, all kinds of wonderful, very sharp alpine kind of geometry. That's still the granite. But there it's being affected by ice riving, glacier plucking, uh, glacial erosion, glacial polishing. Uh, So the glacial aspects acting on the granite give you these very different shapes uh, than what you're going to see down low in, in sort of the desert where the Alabama hills are. By and large, that uniformity of the rock tends to give you these nice, beautiful U-shaped valleys, which are a classic shape that you'll see in the Alps. You see them in much of the Sierra Nevada. But the funny part about the Sierra Nevada is some places, the granite is a little bit different. So in the Tuolumne drainage, which is just north of Yosemite Valley, the rock, it's extraordinarily uniform and it has very, very few joints. It has very few of these little cracks. And so the glaciers were not able to pluck any of the rocks out. So when you look at the what's called the Grand Canyon of the Tuolumne, it's V-shaped. Even though it had the thickest glacier in the Sierra Nevada, um, there was nothing for the glacier to do but just polish it. In contrast, Yosemite Valley, it has this amazing diversity of lots of different kinds of granite. And as a result, it has lots and lots of different fractures and things in different places. So parts of it are extremely fractured, parts of it are not, like El Capitan. And that combination has allowed glaciers to excavate to an extreme degree, so much so that there's 2,000 feet of sediment that actually sits in the bottom of Yosemite Valley. So the original U-shaped valley has been filled in with sediment. And so you have these nice flat meadows practically going up to the base of these tremendous cliffs. And what about the final phase, the present-day climate? Are the rocks there in the Alabama hills exposed, as in the Colorado Plateau, because it's a desert where nothing can grow and cover them up? Yeah, certainly in the Alabama hills, you are in one of the biggest rain shadows on Earth. The high peaks of the Sierra Nevada to the west are over 4,000 meters. The passes are nearly 4,000 meters, so... All that precipitation that would be coming from the west gets scraped off. So the Alabama hills are very much desert. It's extremely dry. It was Mary Austin's book, Land of Little Rain, was about Owens Valley. And just the fact that, that she chose to title the book that tells you just how that situation is. In contrast, the exposure in the high part of the range is because of actually uh, having all of that moisture and having been in an ice age. A lot of soil got scraped off and you just have lots and lots of bare rock and there's only so much vegetation that can claw its way into these bare granite cliffs. What do you consider to be some of the most important geological problems that have yet to be solved in the American West? You know, I think it comes down to paleo elevation. For geophysicists, Elevation is what we'd call the zeroth order observable. It is 
the most important basic piece of information. And we kind of take it for granted today that you look around and you say, well, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yes, we can measure it. We can measure lots and lots of different ways. But as soon as you get into the geologic past, if you're much above sea level, it's really hard to know how high. So, for instance, the argument about the Sierra Nevada, if the Sierra Nevada is young and we've created a young mountain range by removing dense material at the base of the crust, that's important to know because it's telling us about a process that we only see hints of in other places that could be very important. In contrast, if the range is really old, if it's been high, say 40 million years ago, it was really high, then we have a problem that we need to understand how the range could stay that high while things were changing so dramatically in the upper mantle and lower crust underneath. So we look further afield, there's arguments about the Colorado Plateau, there's arguments about the Rocky Mountains, and amazingly, there's an argument about the High Plains, which are here east of where I'm sitting in Boulder, Colorado. You know, are the High Plains high, were they high 60 million years ago? Or have they just gone to their present elevation, making Denver the Mile High City, five million years ago? And again, knowing which of those is really the case, or something in between, is telling us about very large-scale Earth processes that they're not contradicting plate tectonics, but they're expanding upon it. We're learning about processes that uh, we don't really have a grip on at present. It's really intriguing because when you think of large, flat areas, at least naively, I would think of a floodplain, which would be very low because it's got water flooding into it and depositing it, or perhaps something like the Tibet Plateau, which is very high because if you have something like some of the processes you were just talking about, making that region anomalously high, although perhaps not on the same scale as the high plains. So are you thinking that there might be yet some completely new process at work here? It certainly looks like there's got to be something very unusual, the kind of processes. So for instance, dripping off the lower crust and upper mantle like we see under the Sierra Nevada, the scales of the high plains are too large. That's not a process that works at the scales we see of the high plains. We have you know, hundreds of kilometers of gentle gradient going down from the Rocky Mountains down towards the Mississippi River. So it's requiring something novel. And the ideas range from a large-scale flow in the mantle having either pulled everything down uh, and piled up sediment and then pushed it back up, uh, to ideas about changing the character of the mantle over very long wavelengths by adding some water and creating less dense minerals in the mantle, to a kind of nutty idea that we've put forward a few years ago where the water coming off of the old laramide slab came up actually through the mantle and made it into the lower crust where the lower crust previously had been rich in garnet. That garnet would retrograde under those conditions into less dense minerals and produce a very broad uplift. So, you know, these are the hooks that I think those of us in doing research really look for. We're trying to look for the things that you can't really explain easily with the current paradigm. And I think the High Plains are a really stupendously dramatic example of that, because a big difference with, say, the Tibetan Plateau is the Tibetan Plateau, there's a tremendous amount of deformation and crustal thickening. There are thrust faults, 
all the way across the Tibetan Plateau. The high plains are undeformed. There's no crustal shortening by thrust faulting. There's been no physical deformation of it. The oil geologists who work across it, it's practically a layer cake of sediments that have accumulated over the past 400, 500 million years. So it's the kind of place where we learn new things about how a planet can actually operate. Craig Jones, thank you very much. Uh, Again, thank you very much for having me. For more about Geology Bites, as well as pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, you can go to geologybites.com.